0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open to our Scripture readings this morning in connection with the Canons of Door, chapter 3, 4, articles 7 through 10. First of all, we read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty... Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire And achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in peace, in joy rather, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the pine tree. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. For an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Let's also turn to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 13, where we'll read verses 1 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. 60 or 30 times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the Word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the Word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Beloved congregation, The Lord Jesus Christ. Recently I came across a true story of an older Christian man. We don't do this in our circles, but this older man was asked to give his testimony in front of an audience. The man told about how God had searched for and found him, how God had loved him, how God had saved him through Christ, In all this, he gave a great witness to the work of God and his salvation. He pointed his listeners entirely to God. Afterwards, somebody came up to him and criticized him for what he'd said. This person said, you know, I appreciated all that you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. You know, salvation is really part us. And part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh yes, the older man replied. I apologize for that. I'm sorry. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away and his part was running after me until he caught me. Now that story tells us a lot about the nature of the gospel. The nature of God's work in our lives. On our own, apart from God's work in our lives, we all run away. But God goes after us. God chases us, grabs hold of us, gives us the righteousness of Christ, and takes us for His own sons. This is the Gospel of grace. Taught us in the Scriptures and summarized by the church in the canons of Dort. This morning we're going to continue with our series of sermons on the canons. In the articles we're looking at today, we're learning about the call of the gospel. Who's called, how they're called, and what happens when they're called, and why. Well, let's first have a look at article 7. If we open up our books of praise to page 554, we'll read that together. And Here we confess in article 7 why the gospel is sent to some and not to others. Under the old dispensation, God revealed this mystery of His will to few. Under the new dispensation, however, He took the distinction between the people's away and revealed it to a larger number. The cause of this very distribution of the Gospel is not to be ascribed to the worthiness of one people above another, nor to the better use of the light of nature, but to the sovereign good pleasure and undeserved love of God. Therefore we, to whom so great a grace is granted, beyond and contrary to all we deserve, ought to acknowledge it with a humble and grateful heart. But as regards to others whom this grace is not given, we ought with the Apostle to adore the severity and righteousness of the judgments of God. But by no means inquisitively to pry into them. Now this article refers to two dispensations. Not a very common word, word that we don't use very often, and don't let that word dispensation confuse you. Because in the original Latin text of the Canons of Dort, it simply said Old Testament and New Testament. There are many similarities between the Old Testament time, dispensation, and the New Testament time. But there are also important differences. And one of the differences between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era is the number of people to whom God revealed the mystery of His will. The mystery of His will. That's not a phrase that the fathers at the Synod of Dort invented themselves. It comes straight out of Scripture in Ephesians 1, verse 9. And the mystery of God's will is simply that God would choose some to salvation. Some to salvation before the creation of the world that He would do this out of His good pleasure. Now in the Old Testament, this mystery was revealed only to a few, particularly to the people of Israel. Though as you know, there were also a few others who got added in there as well. Now, in the development of redemptive history, because of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on, God made a distinction between Israel and the other nations. However, in the New Testament era, the New Dispensation, a change has taken place. God's purposes to bring a Savior into the world, those purposes were fulfilled. Christ came incarnated on earth, carried out his earthly ministry, was crucified, and so on. Now, redemptive history has moved forward into another phase where God is being glorified by the Gospel going out to every nation on earth. A large number of people are now recipients of the Gospel message. And this is more true today than at any other point in history. Of course, sometimes the gospel message that goes out is impure, sometimes it's superficial, but yet the fact stands out that never before in history have more living people heard the gospel than today. Despite that, there are still many who have not heard. In India alone, There are approximately 385 million people who haven't been reached with the Gospel in a meaningful way. 385 million. The next two highest countries after India are Sudan with 15 million and China with 11 million. All of those people who haven't heard. There's a certain direction could say, to the distribution of the gospel. And Article 7 asks why this is so. And before we look at the answer, we need to briefly consider the background to this question. And for that, we have to go back to Chapter 1 of the Canons of Dort and look at the rejection of errors, number 9. Let's do that. Chapter 1, Rejection of Errors 9. That is on page 544. We can take a look here and we can see what the Arminians believed on this point. Keep in mind that in these errors, these are actual quotations from Arminian writings. The uh, fathers at the Synod of Dortmund were not putting words in the mouths of the Arminians. So when we read this error, this is what they actually said, or wrote. God sends the Gospel to one people rather than to another, not merely and solely because of the good pleasure of His will, but because one people is better and worthier than another to which the Gospel is not preached. Let's also read the refutation below that. Moses denies this when he addresses the people of Israel as follows. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love upon your fathers and chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as, it, as at this day. Deuteronomy 10, 14-15 And Christ says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Those were Israelite towns. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Matthew 11-21 When we go back to Article 7, we find that the fathers at the Synod of Dort explicitly reject two reasons why the Gospel goes out to some peoples and not to others. The first is that idea that we find in uh, Refutation of Errors number 9, the idea that one people is of a better moral quality than another. Well, you only need to, to read the first three chapters of the book of Romans where you see it said very clearly that no person, Jew or Gentile, has a better position before God because of their ethnicity. Romans 2.11 says it very bluntly. For God does not show favoritism. The second reason that's rejected has to do with what we heard last time about the, the light of nature. The Arminians said that some people from certain nations, they, they use the light of nature in a better way. Remember that, the light of nature is that innate knowledge of God that all people have. Now most likely, when the Armenians said this, they were thinking of the Greeks and the Romans, among whom the Gospel was first preached. During the 16th and 17th centuries, there were some who regarded pagan Greek and Roman philosophers As using the light of nature in such a positive way that you could almost look at them as being proto-Christians. Or perhaps, you know, at least on their way to becoming Christians. But the reality from scripture, and again, you can think of Romans chapter 1, which we read in the uh, last sermon on this. The reality is that unregenerate man doesn't use the light of nature properly, and it doesn't matter whether he's a Greek or a Roman or a German or Dutch or wherever he's from. So those two ideas are out. We reject them. And having rejected them, we confess that the Gospel message gets distributed the way it does because of the sovereign good pleasure and undeserved love of God. No one deserves it. Only God knows why. Why? Sending the Gospel to the Dutch first and then to the Papuans later. Why, that was the best plan. It's one of those secret things spoken of in Deuteronomy 29. A secret thing that belongs to God which we should not pry into. Instead of being nosy, we should simply be humble and be thankful that God did send the Gospel to us and to our forefathers. We didn't deserve it. We have no reason for pride. God didn't send the Gospel to us or to our forefathers because we're so worthy, because we had such great character traits. He did it out of His good pleasure. He did it for His glory. And we should simply acknowledge that And praise God for it. And believing that God knows best, because He is God, we can also adore Him and honor Him for what He's decided for others. And that's not to say that we become fatalistic and we say, well, you know, God has decided that there are 385 million people in India who haven't heard the Gospel, and I guess that's just the way it's got to be. I guess we can leave it at that. Brothers and sisters, we can't adopt that way of thinking because Scripture clearly tells us that God's will is for the Gospel to go out to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, including the 385 million who haven't heard in India. Think only of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28. You see, there's a difference between God's decree, His decorative will, And God's command, His preceptive will. God's decree is that up till now, those 385 million people haven't heard. But you know, it's not necessarily God's secret decree that in 10 or 15 years, those 385 million people still haven't heard. We don't know. That's why God's decorative will is sometimes called His secret will. We don't have access to it. Only God knows. We still have God's command. We have His preceptive will clearly laid out for us in Scripture. God wants the Gospel to go out and to reach those 385 million, along with the millions of others in Sudan and China and elsewhere. Let's now move on and read the next article. Article 8. Article 8, the earnest call by the gospel. But as many as are called by the gospel are earnestly called, for God earnestly and most sincerely reveals in His word what is pleasing to Him, namely that those who are called should come to Him. He also earnestly promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to Him and believe. This article introduces the notion of the call of the gospel. And here again, we need a little bit of background to see why this is important. We have to go back to the Arminians, or, or the remonstrances, as they're sometimes called. The Arminians said that if the doctrines of grace are true, then God is cruel. God is a cruel teaser, proclaiming the gospel to the reprobate, to somebody who will never come to saving faith is like telling a blind man to see. Or, or telling a, a lame man to walk. And then when that blind man doesn't see and that lame man doesn't get up and walk, you blame him for it. He's responsible for it. It's his fault. And so the Armenian said, either it's a sincere call of the Gospel which depends on the free will of man, or it depends on the sovereignty of God and that it isn't really a sincere, well-meant offer. See the dilemma here? Article 8 responds to this dilemma by simply summarizing what the Bible says. The Bible teaches election. It teaches all the doctrines of grace. But the Bible also teaches us that God earnestly and seriously calls all those who hear the Gospel. You can find that in several places in the Bible, but let's just look briefly at the passage we read from Isaiah 55. Now that passage was originally addressed to the people of God. So the earnest call of good news in the first two verses has to be understood in that context. In that framework, God earnestly and seriously calls His covenant people. But there's more, because in verses 4 and 5, we find that, that other nations are in view too. God doesn't just focus on, on the people of Israel. Even in the book of Isaiah, His purposes are bigger and grander. The good news of water, wine, and milk, and all those things, they, they, they represent life. The good news of life is earnestly and sincerely meant for all nations and for all peoples. God's will. and By that, again, we mean His commanding will. His preceptive will is that all those who are called should come to Him. In other words, people might disobey and people do disobey, but they're not allowed to. There are consequences when you don't. God seriously calls, and they're supposed to come. And He not only calls, He also gives a promise. The promise is that those who repent and believe will find rest for their souls, and they will find eternal life. And of course, that promise can be found in the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. Now this teaching is simple enough. But it isn't so simple To reconcile it with the doctrines of grace. The well-meant gospel offer is there in the Bible, and so are the doctrines of grace. And speaking logically, there just doesn't seem to be a way to make them totally fit together. Is that a problem? I think it's a problem. Only if we can't live with a God who is bigger More mysterious, more grand than we can ever imagine. There are many things about God that we will never understand in this life. And perhaps we will never even understand them in the life to come. God is God. He is the Creator. We are His creatures. He is the Father. We are His children. We have to simply accept in faith that there are some things that God has revealed. Some things that we just can't simply, we can't wrap our puny created brains around it. And so we need to remind ourselves of what it says in Isaiah 55 verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And so there is mystery in connection with the doctrines of grace and how they relate to the well-meant gospel offer. But some things are also very clear. And again, they're clear because they're clear in the Bible. And we have an example of that with Article 9. Let's take a look at that now. Article 9 is on page 555. Why some who are called do not come. It is not the fault of the Gospel, nor of the Christ offered by the Gospel, nor of God who calls through the Gospel and who even confers various gifts upon them, that many who are called to the ministry of the Gospel do not come and are not converted. The fault lies in themselves. Some of them do not care and do not accept the Word of Life. Others do indeed receive it, but they do not accept it into their hearts And therefore, after the joy of a temporary faith has vanished, they turn away. Still others choke the seed of the word by the thorns of the cares and the pleasures of this world and bring forth no fruit. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the seed, Matthew 13. So we're dealing here with the question of why some who are called don't come. And just as it did in the article before this one, The Synod, first of all, deals with the negatives, responding to the accusations of the Arminians about the Reformed teaching. The Synod said, listen, there's no problem with the Gospel. The message of the Gospel is clear. It's not confusing. It's not a complex message. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ so that the wrath of God will be turned away. Further, the synod said, listen, there's no problem with the Christ offered by the Gospel. It's not like Christ's work is is lacking in some respect. And finally, also, you can't blame God. God is the one who calls through the Gospel. And He even gives all sorts of gifts to the unregenerate. God is good. He's full of grace even to those who reject Him. So forget about blaming God. And so where does the blame lie? Well, it lies entirely with man. When somebody doesn't heed the gospel call, it's that person's fault. Entirely. For 100%. And to support this assertion, the canons refer to the parable the Lord Jesus told in Matthew 13. Now before we look at that parable in a bit of detail, I'd like you to notice something. At the end of Article 9, we read this statement. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the seed. Matthew 13. Now look in your Bibles at Matthew 13. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, or if uh, you're using an NIV, Matthew 13, you'll see that there is a, a subtitle over the parable. It says the parable of the sower. You see the difference? The canons have the seed. Our Bibles have the sower. Now, of course, the subtitles in our Bibles are not original to our text. The Greek New Testament was not handed down to us with subtitles. They're not the inspired Word of God. And to be fair, Bibles have been using this subtitle for many, many years. It's not a problem with the NIV. But what noticing this does, it shows a little bit of a shift in thinking since the time of the Canons of Dort. The fathers at the Synod of Dort recognized that the focus in the parable is not on the sower, but on the seed. What happens to the seed? Does the seed produce fruit? In the the parable, the sower is in the background. The seed is what matters. And the seed is the same in each instance. And the seed in the parable represents the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that's why verse 9 says, He who has ears, let him hear. The question this parable is putting to its recipients then and now, is what do you do with the Gospel when you hear it? Using the image of the parable, what kind of soil are you? According to the Lord Jesus, there are four different kinds. The first is the soil of the path. It represents those who hear the Word, don't understand it, don't even care either. The seed doesn't even penetrate. The second... Is the soil of the rocky places. This stands for those who hear the gospel, who receive it for a little while, and then when persecution or or suffering comes along, then they fall away. The third is the soil of the thorny places. This one hears the word because of worldliness and because of worries, the thorns and the cares of the pleasures of this world. This seed bears no fruit. Now in each of these instances, again, note, the seed is the same. The sower is in the background, but the sower is the same person too. It's the soils that are different. The soils are 100% responsible for what kind of fruit they bring forth, or whether they bring forth any fruit at all. And so the Lord Jesus is asking, also asking us, what kind of soil are you? What do you do with the call of the Gospel? The same parable makes it clear that there are some who do receive the seed. They hear the call of the Gospel. They understand. And they come. They're converted to Christ. They produce fruit. And the reason why is discussed in the last article we're looking at this morning. Article 10, page 555. Why others who are called do come. Others who are called by the ministry of the gospel do come and are converted. This is not to be ascribed to man. He does not distinguish himself by his free will above others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith or conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. It is to be ascribed to God. He has chosen his own in Christ from eternity and calls them effectually within time. He gives them faith and repentance. He delivers them from the power of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of His Son. All this He does, that they may declare the wonderful deeds of Him who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light, and may not boast of themselves, but of the Lord, according to the testimony of the apostles in various places. So the reason why connects with that story that we heard at the beginning of the sermon, About the man who ran away from God. All we bring to the salvation equation, all we bring of ourselves is our sin and our rebellion. God is the one who works to save. Notice in this article how often God is the subject of the sentences. He, that's God, has chosen his own in Christ. He gives them faith and repentance. He delivers them, and so on. The work of salvation is of God from first to last. Seems obvious, perhaps, to us. That's been disputed in the history of the church. And one of the first to question it was a 4th century British monk named Pelagius. Pelagius came to Rome And he was distressed. He was really bothered by what he saw there. He was bothered by the teaching that was going on in the church at Rome. It was the teaching of Augustine. It was the teaching of the doctrines of grace. Pelagius thought, this is too much. This is too far gone. And so Pelagius went on the offensive against the doctrines of grace. And he taught, that man is born good Man is born with a free will. Man can exercise his free will. He can make his way back to God on his own. Eventually, took some time, but eventually a form of the teaching of Pelagius won the day in the medieval church. And finally, one day, another monk came to Rome. And this monk was distressed by what he saw and what he heard through his trip to Rome and through a number of other means, not least of which was the Word of God itself, Martin Luther became convinced of the centrality of the grace of God in our salvation. John Calvin and the other Reformers, they followed suit until finally God had powerfully restored the teaching of the doctrines of grace in the church. Then eventually, James Arminius... And his followers came along and revived something of what the canons call the the proud heresy of Pelagius. The Arminians denied that the work of salvation is of God from first to last. The person who believes has a part to play. They argued that believers are ahead above others because they exercise their free will. Whereas others, they weren't so smart and so good. And so, a consistent Arminian, and I I say with thankfulness that there are not very many consistent Arminians in the world today. But if 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 somebody was very consistent in their Arminian theology, it could be a very proud person. After all, he did his part for his salvation; he deserves some of the credit. He could say, I'm a big part of where I am today. I'm so proud of myself. And we all know the hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, perhaps you haven't heard the the Arminian version. I'm not going to sing it for you. But I will tell you how, how the words go anyway. Arminian grace, how strange the sound! Salvation hinged on me. I once was lost and turned around was blind, then chose to see. That's a joke. Of course, like I said, only a radically consistent Arminian would sing something so foolish. Most Arminians, whether they're self-conscious or not, and again, I say this with great thankfulness, they would rather sing the original version by John Newton, the one that we're familiar with. Somebody recently did a survey at a Christian booksellers convention in the United States. They did a survey and they asked a good number of people, including a good number of pastors, whether the saying, God helps those who help themselves, whether that's a quote from the Bible. Well, the majority of people who were there agreed that that saying came from the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. though so nobody could remember the exact text. Well, it's not a biblical quote. It's not a biblical concept. In fact, the quote seems to originate with Benjamin Franklin. And old Ben had it wrong. God helps those who are completely helpless. That's the gospel of grace. And that's true not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification God doesn't meet us halfway. Say, you do your part and then I'll do my part and together we'll get you saved. God takes us all the way. Our salvation is to be entirely credited to God. We confess that God calls us effectually. Now the call does go out to both the elect and the reprobate. There is a, a universal aspect to it. But with one specific group of recipients, with the elect, there's a different result. We say that God irresistibly and effectually calls those whom He chose, those whom He chose before the creation of the world, in Christ. Apart from the grace of the Spirit, man's instinct is to run away and and to resist. But God goes after man and brings him back. In fact, John 6.44 gives us a a powerful image. The Lord Jesus says there, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And actually, the, the Greek word there for draws could also be translated as drags. The Father who sent Me drags him. As in, man is dead. And God picks him up. And God drags him, pulls him back to, to life, into his presence. Through the Gospel, God effectually calls the elect to fullness of life in Christ. And he does this all so that he would be more and more praised by us. Now look at the way Article 10 ends by tying together the thoughts of, of several Scripture passages which clearly speak of the purpose of God saving us. All this he does that they may declare the wonderful deeds who called them, of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light and may not boast of themselves but of the Lord according to the testimony of the apostles in various places. We're going to boast, we boast forever and ever in the Lord. And so brothers and sisters, what does this teaching do to your heart? Doesn't it? stir up in you something? Doesn't it stir up in you praises for the sovereign God of grace? When you hear the glorious good news that you're receiving the Gospel call, you're believing the Gospel call, all of that is God's work. Doesn't that make you want to praise Him? And to do that in a powerful way. I'm looking back to Article 6. We're reminded that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that God does all these things. So I think it's particularly appropriate that again we sing a song of praise to Him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org